Father, we've praised you, we've confessed our sin, we've come before you and asked for things, we've asked that you would bless us, that you would allow us to see your glory. Lord, now we come to hear from you. Bless us now by speaking to us through your word, by your spirit. Bless us with your presence, we pray. In Jesus' name and for his glory, amen. It's fun to watch someone do what they were made to do. Not just something they're pretty good at, but something that it just seems like they were born to do. If you watch Usain Bolt run, you can just tell he was made to do that. Uh, he'll make winning the 100-meter dash in the Olympic finals look easy. He'll blow past everyone and have a big smile on his face. It makes it fun to watch because it just seems like he was born to do it. And if you've ever been able to see your favorite musician live, you might have thought to yourself, well, God gave this person this voice or these fingers just that were meant to do this. It's a good thing they're doing this, and, and we're all enjoying watching it. Or maybe you've seen those videos of an animal who's been in captivity for a while, or maybe been recovering from something, and they take them out back to their natural habitat, and they open the cage, and they just run out and start jumping or like rolling around in the grass. Uh, they just know that they're meant to be there, and we enjoy watching that. What were you meant to do? What's something that you're good at that brings you joy, something that makes hard work worth it? What's something that you could spend the rest of your life doing? What were you made, born, created to do? As creatures, we've all been given many different gifts, but we all really have one final purpose, one thing we're all made for, one thing we'll ultimately delight in. And that one thing is dwelling with the Lord, being in His presence. That's what our psalm's about. It's about dwelling with the Lord of all creation, the King of glory. We'll see that by asking a few questions. What is the hill of the Lord? Who ascends that hill? And what is life like on that hill? What is the hill of the Lord? Who ascends that hill? And what's life like on that hill? First, what is the hill of the Lord? The hill of the Lord is the presence of the Lord. The hill of the Lord is the presence of the Lord. So to ascend the hill of the Lord is to enter into his presence. Two weeks ago, we looked at the first two verses of this psalm. We saw that the earth is the Lord's, all of it. But if the whole earth is his, how can just two verses later, the psalmist say he has a holy place, a holy hill, a mountain that's uniquely his? How can he have a place if it's all his? How can he have a unique presence if, to use a theological term, he's omnipresent? 
That's true. He's omnipresent, which means he's everywhere. There's nowhere you can go and look and say, God can't find me there. So God is omnipresent. The Bible's clear about that. He's not limited by space or time. But the reality is that we can be far off from the Lord. The Bible says we can be far off from Him. It also says we can draw near to Him. It says He can draw near to us. He can come. He can withdraw. He can call us to Himself. We can come or run from Him. Not spatially, but relationally. Not spatially, but relationally. One way God chooses to picture this reality, to picture His presence, is in the image in verse 3 of a mountain or a hill. It's the same word in the original language, and usually in your ESV it's translated the mountain of the Lord. Here they chose to translate it hill of the Lord. So I may use those terms interchangeably, hill or mountain. Through Scripture, we see four mountains that are going to help paint this picture, that the mountain of the Lord is the presence of the Lord. It's where His presence is. We're going to look at Eden, Sinai, Jerusalem, and the heavenly Jerusalem. Let's look first at Eden. The Garden of Eden, it's the original holy place, the original holy hill. It's an elevated piece of land. We know that because a river flows out of it. It's flowing downhill. Rivers don't flow uphill. So Eden's the original holy hill. It's where Adam and Eve enjoy the presence, the friendship of God. They're created to be in and enjoy the presence of their creator. They're made on the sixth day, and immediately the next day they experience Sabbath rest, joyful worship and presence of the Lord. Together with the Lord, they rest, they commune with one another, and enjoy everything He's made. They're created to enjoy holy friendship with God. They gladly receive all things from Him, even and especially receiving Him Himself, and they give themselves in perfect obedience. But of course, we know what happens. They don't obey. They break fellowship. Sin enters and gets between man and God. They've ruined the holy relationship they once enjoyed. So they're driven from the garden. They're driven from the presence, the friendship of God. God even sets up an angel with a flaming sword at the entrance to show us this. The relationship's broken. They can't re-enter the garden. They can't come back into the same gracious, blessed, holy presence of God. Sinful man cannot enter the presence of a holy God. To try and go back is death. To try and go back up the hill is death. For a sinful human to try and re-enter that same intimacy with a holy God is impossible, it's dangerous, it's even deadly. We don't tend to think this way, though. We don't tend to think that a close encounter with God would equal death. But people who have actually had close encounters with God do think this way. You think of Isaiah when he's brought into the throne room of God. He's overcome with fear 
He's facing reality and he screams, woe is me, I am lost. I am undone, I am ruined, I am doomed. When John sees the Son of God in Revelation, he falls down as though dead. What do you think a close encounter with God would be like? I grew up going to the beach all the time. You can always tell who the tourists are at the beach. They're not just the people who are wearing sneakers walking around on the sand. Uh, They're the ones who don't respect the ocean very much. I don't mean they litter, though they tend to do that too. I mean they don't have a healthy fear of the ocean's power. So you see them kind of get there and they walk in their sneakers, they untie their shoes and take their socks off and put their stuff down. They probably have too much stuff and then they go to the water and as soon as they start to walk in, they kind of just stroll in and the first big wave comes and almost always knocks them over. People who don't spend a lot of time around the ocean don't fear it. And when they encounter it, doesn't go well. Now, surfers who spend every day in the water, or fishermen who have been out of the, uh, at sea during a storm, they don't treat the ocean casually. They don't take its power lightly. So if you don't fear the ocean, it's because you probably haven't spent much time around it. You haven't gone near it. If you don't fear the presence of the Lord, it might be because you haven't spent that much time around Him. You haven't tried to draw near to him. You haven't been hit with a powerful wave or come close and feel the heat of his burning hot holiness. The general lack of fear of God in society, in our own lives, isn't because we've grown up. A lack of fear isn't because we've evolved. It's not because we're smarter now than people used to be. It's not because we don't believe in fairy tales anymore. Our general lack of fear of the Lord is because we've never spent time thinking about the holiness of the Lord. We've never spent time desiring to be near Him. We don't set our mind on things that are above. We don't want anything more for ourselves than what we can see with our eyes. Man was made for more than we can see with our eyes. We were made to be in the presence of the Lord. We were made to enjoy friendship, intimate friendship with God. Adam was meant to work and worship and rest and rejoice in the presence of Creator. He was meant to enjoy life with the giver of life. He was meant to enjoy the fullness of life in the presence of God who is the fullness of life himself. But Adam rebels and gives that up. He's driven away from the presence of the Lord. What's life like now? Far from the Lord? Man now lives as a wanderer on the earth. We're cast out of the garden, sent away from God's holy hill, away from the presence of the Lord. Man now drifts around, trying to come up with his own goals. We try and find our own meaning, our own purpose, our own morality. What's the result? That sin increases and 
drives us even further from the Lord. And we have a result, a deep sense of purposelessness. We have a constant dread. Anxiety just kind of looms over us. Time slips by and we waste it because we don't know what we're supposed to be living for. And as it slips by, we worry. We worry that we're wasting it and we don't even know what to do. We don't know what we should be doing with our time. Apart from the presence of God, we're just condemned to wander, to drift, and actually to sink into a dehumanizing existence. To come into the presence of a holy God is terrifying. It even means death. To be driven away from the God of life likewise is death. You see the problem, the dilemma that we have? It's the problem that the whole Bible really is wrestling with. It's the problem that mankind's trying to solve on our own, coming up with philosophies, false religions. It's all to solve this problem. Sinful man cannot enter the presence of the Lord. But there's no life apart from the Lord either. So the whole of the Bible is asking this question. Can we get back into God's presence? Can we get back into God's presence? Can we get back safely? Can we find life, eternal life in Him? Can man ever return to the garden? Can man reach the goal he was made for? Perfect, eternal friendship with God. The first mountain, Eden, is lost. The second mountain, Sinai, tells us that God's presence is still our goal. It's still God's goal. He hasn't forgotten about mankind. He's not going to settle for some worse goal. Well, Adam messed that up. Maybe we can still put something together and you can eke out a pretty good existence. No. The goal of man and God dwelling together is still there. That's what we learn at Sinai. Sinai is the mountain that God brings Israel to after he rescues him from slavery. He brings the nation out from Egypt, as Nathan told us earlier, through many miracles, through the Passover, the angel of death coming, through the parting of the Red Sea, and he brings his people to Sinai. Turn to Exodus 19 with me, starting in verse 10, we'll read. Exodus 19. Verse 10, the Lord said to Moses, go to the people and consecrate them today and tomorrow and let them wash their garments and be ready for the third day. For on the third day, the Lord will come down on Mount Sinai in the sight of all the people and you shall set limits for the people all around saying, take care not to go up into the mountain or touch the edge of it. Whoever touches the mountain shall be put to death. No hand shall touch him, but he shall be stoned or shot. Whether beast or man, he shall not live. When the trumpet sounds a long blast, they shall come up to the mountain. So once again, just like in Eden, we see God's presence on a mountain. We see God's presence 
But we also see the problem. The people can't approach God. God will descend on the top of the mountain, and the people can come only to the base. They can't go up. They can't draw near to the Lord on their own. But God does call one man up. He calls Moses. He graciously allows Moses to come up the mountain and act as a mediator between the holy God and this sinful nation. He calls Moses upward towards his presence. And through Moses, he enters into a covenant with the people on this mountain, an agreement, a a relationship. He gives Moses the law. He shows him how to build the tabernacle, the tent of meeting. And he tells him uh, all they need to do in order to approach this tent of meeting where the presence of God is safely. They need to cleanse themselves. They need to offer sacrifices. They need to sprinkle it with the blood of bulls and goats. What's the point of all this? Flip to the end of chapter 29 in Exodus. Flip a few pages to the end of chapter 29. On the mountain, God tells them to build this tent, this tabernacle. And this tent becomes, as I said, the place of meeting with God. What's the purpose of this? This is what he says in verse 43, 29, 43. There I will meet with the people of Israel, and it shall, be a sanctu- it shall be sanctified by my glory. I will consecrate the tent of meeting and the altar. Aaron also and his sons I will consecrate to serve me as priests. Now listen to this. I will dwell among the people of Israel and will be their God. And they shall know that I am the Lord their God who brought them out of the land of Egypt, that I might dwell among them. I am the Lord their God. God's saying to the Israelites, who've been a people adrift for hundreds and hundreds of years, really, ever since the garden, they've been a people adrift. What does he tell them? I will dwell among you and will be your God. He's telling the people, do you remember Eden? Remember how we were meant to dwell together? That's still my goal. That's why I've brought you to this mountain that reaches up to the heavens. That's why I've given you this tent. This mountain, Sinai, represents the presence of God. And the third mountain is like it. The third mountain, Mount Zion, Jerusalem, is like it. Like Sinai, the temple mount in Jerusalem represents the presence of the Lord. God chooses a hill in Jerusalem for David to set up his tent, and later for Solomon, his son, to build his temple. If you're interested in reading more about that, join Nathan in the First Kings Bible study. That's the context of this psalm. We're in Jerusalem. It's a psalm of David we see in the heading. The temple hasn't been built, but Jerusalem's been established. God dwells with his people on this holy hill, Jerusalem, Mount Zion. God's presence is represented by the tabernacle and later the temple there. That's where animals are sacrificed. It's where offerings are made. It's where the Ten Commandments are and the Ark of the Covenant. It's where the glory cloud even rests. The temple mount, Jerusalem, represents God's presence. 
We see something very clear about God's presence on this mountain. There are requirements to dwell there. God's a holy God, and the people need to be made holy. The people need to be holy to stay on this mountain. So God gives them this complex sacrificial system. He gives them the law. He tells them to live a certain way. Do so, and I'll dwell with you. So is that it? So at the end of the story, God and man dwell together in Jerusalem. The end. No, like Eden, we know what happens here too. The mountain's a little bit too much like Eden, actually. This relationship between God and Israel is a bit too much like the one in the garden. Because like Eden, they can lose it. They can sin and be cast back out, away from the presence of God. The covenant, this agreement, this relationship, this presence of God in Jerusalem is conditional on their holiness and their obedience. They have to keep killing bulls and goats and rams to enter the temple. They have to live a certain way. There's strict conditions for enjoying God's presence. And again, like Eden, we know the story. They don't live that way. They don't lose, or they do lose the mountain. They're cast out. Israel's sent once again into exile. They're sent away from the presence of God. Again, is this God's plan for humanity, just this cycle of endless trying to get back into presence and failing, trying and failing. Well, that brings us to the fourth mountain. The fourth mountain, the reality that Mount Zion is only picturing. This fourth mountain is the heavenly Zion, the heavenly Jerusalem, the heavenly temple not made by hands, not seen by eyes, not able to be touched. Think about it. Is the Temple Mount in Jerusalem the mountain that David really wants to climb? Is Jerusalem and the temple there on that hill where the psalmist wants to know, who shall ascend this? Who can stand here? Is this the place where David in another psalm says, one thing I've asked of the Lord that I will seek after, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life, to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord and to inquire in his temple. Does David really want to stand in the tabernacle all day? Is his heart set on this tent with goat's hair walls? Is he staking his eternity on a hill in the land of Canaan? No, I think David's talking about a different mountain. I think Jerusalem is a picture, a replica of another place place where God dwells, a place where sinful man can't just walk up, a place that a few sprinkles of goat's blood isn't enough to grant entrance. The author of Hebrews tells us about this mountain. He reminds the Hebrew Christians that he's writing to that their goal isn't to go back to earthly Jerusalem, to the physical Mount Zion. He says in chapter 8, verse 5, that they are only a copy and shadow of the heavenly things. For when Moses was about to erect the tent, he was instructed by God saying, see that you make everything according to the pattern that was shown you on the mountain. 
God shows Moses something real, something spiritual, something heavenly on the mountain. And the tent he built was just a photocopy of it. The author goes on to tell Hebrew Christians, for you have not, or not is important, you have not come to what may be touched, a blazing fire and darkness and gloom and a tempest and the sound of a trumpet and a voice whose words made the hearers beg that no further message be spoken to them. For they could not endure the order that was given. If even a beast touches the mountain, it shall be stoned. Indeed, so terrifying was the sight that Moses said, I tremble with fear. But, the Hebrew, the author of the Hebrews says, but you have come to Mount Zion and to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem. In other words, he's saying, you, Christian, have already come to something that's better than Mount Sinai, something better than Mount Zion. You've come to something that can't be touched, can't be lost. You've moved past the picture to the presence. So in Eden, we get the first picture of God's presence on a hill, and it's made to live with God together on a hill. Sinai tells us that even though man's sinned, God's still holding out that same promise. We can still dwell together with God. Mount Zion in Jerusalem tells us that God's presence requires holiness. There's a condition. If Israel's not holy, they'll be cast out. And so it's fourthly, the heavenly Mount Zion. That's the goal of humanity. It's not an earthly mountain, but the spiritual reality of God's presence. So that brings us, finally, to our question in verse 3. We now see what the hill of the Lord is. It's God's presence. Now we can ask, who shall ascend? Who will enter his presence? Who can climb that invisible, untouchable mountain? Well, the psalm gives us an answer. So look at verses 3 and 4 again with me. Back in Psalm 24. Who shall ascend the hill of the Lord? And who shall stand in his holy place? That's the question. And the answer comes, He who has clean hands and a pure heart, who does not lift up his soul to what is false, and does not swear deceitfully. Only one with clean hands and a pure heart can climb that hill. The requirements aren't physical strength or mountain climbing prowess. The most expensive climbing supplies can't help you up this mountain. The most cunning Sherpa can't help guide you up this holy hill. To ascend this mountain, you need clean hands and a pure heart. Clean hands and a pure heart. Dirty hands ruin things. The other morning, like every morning, I ground fresh coffee beans, as Steve Dobblestein taught me how to do. I ground fresh coffee beans, filled the pot with filtered water, pressed brew now on our coffee maker. After a few minutes, I was enjoying a, a warm, crisp, light roasted brew with fruity notes. I left it on the table to go help Paige with something in the kitchen. Ten seconds later, I turn back to the coffee table and find Thea's hand just in the coffee. She didn't knock over the cup or throw it as she tends to do. She was just splashing around in it. 
her hand that was crawling on the floor, was in her mouth, was playing with dirty kitchen towels just moments before, and who knows where else her hand was, was in my perfect cup of coffee. My perfect cup of coffee was defiled. Who can come, work, serve, and worship in God's temple? Not someone whose hands are covered in blood, tainted by adultery, polluted with stolen money. Who can come delight in the presence of a pure and holy God? Not someone whose heart is filled with what's false, who's a hypocrite, swearing deceitfully, whose mind is full of corruption, who says one thing but lives another, puts on a show of religion. Yeah. What's required? Whole life holiness. That's what's required. Man can't enter or enjoy the presence of a holy God without holiness himself. But you ask, who can say their hands are clean? Who can say they've never gone after what's false, what they knew was wrong? Who's never looked over their shoulder before doing something? Who's never checked to make sure someone else wasn't around before saying something? The answer to the psalmist's question surely can't be me. I can. I'll go up. My hands are clean. My heart's pure. You and I aren't courageous explorers struggling our way up to the top of a difficult Everest. We're fearful, sinful people huddled at the base of a mountain, unable and unworthy to go up. We have to sing with Andrew Peterson, who can ascend the hill of the Lord, the one who utters no untrue word, whose hands are clean, whose heart is pure, who can ascend that hill? There is none righteous, no, not one. We are prodigal daughters and wayward sons. We don't know the half of the hurt we've done, the countless we have killed. Our priests are cheats, our prophets are liars. We know what the law requires, but we pile our sins up higher and higher. Who can ascend that hill? And I am a sheep who has gone astray. I have turned aside to my own way. Have mercy on me, son of David. Who shall ascend the hill of the Lord? Who will enter the presence of the Lord? Who has clean hands and a pure heart? Christ, the son of David, the son of God. The good news of the gospel is not that you can clean up your hands, not that you can redeem yourself. It's not that you can tie your hiking shoes, climb up the mountain yourself. The good news of the gospel is that while we were huddled at the base of the mountain, Christ climbed up. The Son of God descended from heaven, took on flesh, becoming man. He did the will of his Father. He was perfectly obedient. He had perfectly clean hands, a perfectly pure heart, loving God with all his heart, soul, mind, and strength, and his neighbor as himself. And he climbed the holy hill, the heavenly Zion. He came to the entrance of the temple 
And there at the entrance of the temple, he offered himself up on the altar. See, no one could enter the temple. No one could come to the top of that hill without sacrifice. Man earned death by sinning against God. And the true man, Christ, offered himself up in death so that as the true man, he could enter the holy place. He dies on the cross as the perfect, spotless sacrifice. When you use temple ritual language, his death purifies, sanctifies, consecrates, makes holy, makes pure. Even His death even does that for himself. His death is the ultimate consecration, sanctification, the capstone of his life of devotion to the, to the Father. Because of his holy life, his pure offering, he rises from the dead and ascends to heaven, to the heavenly mountain, the holy of holies, he reaches the top. He ascends the mountain, not the picture, but the mountain itself, the true heavenly spiritual mountain of the Lord. And there he sits at the right hand of the Father, ruling and reigning and enjoying the presence of God eternally. From there, he calls us. He calls to us at the base of the mountain. Come up. Come to me. Again, Andrew Peterson sings, Now hear the voice of the Word made man, the spotless sacrificial lamb. A body you gave me, here I am. I come to do your will. And no one takes my life, you see. I lay it down now willingly. And I will draw all men to me when I ascend that hill. Because Christ has ascended that hill, he is able to save forever to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. Christ hasn't gone up for himself. He's gone up for us, for his people, for all who would repent and believe in him, for all who would turn from their sin, from what makes hands dirty and what makes hearts impure. They would instead set their heart on Christ. Come to Christ. Come to him in faith. He's the only way back to the presence of God. He's the only one who climbed the mountain. And he's our way up the mountain ourselves. The only way for us to ascend the mountain is to live by faith. To believe in Christ. To trust in him. To follow him. A life of faith is believing in Christ. A life of faith is a life of following Christ. A life of faith is a life of holiness, of putting off sin, of following the law, of fulfilling the law through love. Christ is the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father, he says, but through me. And to come through him is to be made like him to live a life that's increasingly conformed to his image, which is an image of holiness. Holiness, faith, and relationship with God are inseparably related. James says, as we read this morning, draw near to God, he will draw near to you. And then he says, cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. 
The way to draw near to God, James is saying, is through holiness. That's why Christ died. It's to make us holy. He died to prepare us for an eternity in the presence of a holy God. And Christ prepares us by calling us to follow him in holiness. The way to the top of the mountain is preparing you for life at the top of the mountain. The way to the top of the mountain is preparing you for life at the top of the mountain. A life of faith-fueled holiness, of killing sin, of denying ourselves, of suffering faithfully. That life, that way, is preparing us for eternal life, free from sin, perfectly devoted to the Lord. That's what it means to be holy, to be devoted to the Lord. A life of increasing holiness, a life of spirit-empowered, Christ-trusting holiness is a life of growing nearer and nearer to God. It's a life of loving and enjoying Him more and more. And that's what life at the top looks like. It looks like total, perfect devotion to the Lord. It looks like perfect and pure enjoyment of Him. Who sings these last four verses of our psalm? Lift up your heads, O gates, and be lifted up, O ancient doors, that the King of glory may come in. Who is this King of glory? The Lord, strong and mighty, the Lord, mighty in battle. Lift up your heads, O gates, and lift them up, O ancient doors, that the King of glory may come in. Who is this King of glory? The Lord of hosts. He is the King of glory. These last few verses are probably call and response verses as the ark would come into the city of Jerusalem after a battle. The people of Jerusalem would sing and celebrate the victory of the Lord in the presence of the Lord among his people. Who sings these last four verses now? The people of the new Jerusalem, the holy ones, those who Christ has sanctified has saved and has given new, clean hearts who love him, who rejoice at his victory over sin and delight in his presence. Imagine walking up to someone's house, seeing a bunch of people in there, everyone in there is just overflowing with joy because you're there. You open the doors and they say, open them up, open them so Aaron can come in, so Marilyn can come in. Prepare the house, quick, set him a place at the table, get dinner started, pour him his favorite drink. Someone says, who's here? They answer by giving you the best title that they can think of. They're just embarrassing you with praise, but they really mean it. That's the picture in verses 7 through 10. Just utter joy. Not you, but the Lord is coming to dwell with his people. Who are his people? Who are these joyful ones rejoicing at his coming? It's those who love his holiness, his perfect purity, and those who long for it themselves. It's those who Christ makes holy, who pursue holiness and rejoice in the Lord now and forever. It's saints. 
holy ones, Christians, who enjoy close, gracious fellowship with their Creator. You and I were made for holy fellowship with God. And the only way into that holy fellowship is through the person and sanctifying work of Christ. The only way is for Him to make us holy, to prepare us for glory, and bring us there Himself, where He's already gone ahead of us. Here are the description of what He's prepared us for and what He's preparing for us. Hear John describe it in Revelation. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death will be no more. Neither shall be, there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. And where is John when he sees this vision? A few verses later, if on the angel tell John, come and I will show you the bride, the wife of the lamb, and he carried me away in the spirit to a great high mountain and showed me the holy city, Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, having the glory of God, its radiance like a most rare jewel. We're made to dwell with God, to enjoy Him, to be devoted to Him upon His holy hill. Are you devoted to the Lord? Are you ascending that holy hill in and through Christ? Are we as a church preparing ourselves to be a worthy bride adorned for her husband? Does that picture we get in Revelation excite you? Draw near to God today. Draw near to him in Christ. Draw near to him in holiness, in love, and in joy. And he will draw near to you. Let's pray. Father, that's our prayer. You would grant, by your grace, that we would draw near to you in Christ, in his perfect person, his perfect work, that we would believe in him, that we would be made like him, and that you would draw near to us. Be near to us, Lord, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.